Welcome to the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. For more information about our church and to keep up to date with the latest resources, please visit our website at www.trinitybaptist.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, church. The Lord is with you. Jacob, Melinda and I have twice gotten to hear the Gettys present, and if you think of concerts as sitting in a pew and listening to somebody else sing, it's a different experience altogether. It's a congregational worship experience, and people sing, and it's really quite wonderful and uh, very powerful, and I hope you're able to experience that with them. You all remember Job, do you not, and his story? Um, righteous man, he had family, and he had wealth, and uh, respect and health, and then through a series of tests that came his way, uh, all of those things were taken away, one after another. He, he lost his wealth, he lost his children, he lost his own health, he found himself in chronic pain, and he could not possibly understand why this was happening to him, because he believed, like his world believed, and like people still often believe in our world, that bad things just don't happen to good people. And he was a righteous man, and these things were happening to him, and all he could think of was, there must be something wrong in my life. He had four friends who came to visit him, to comfort him, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Namanite, and Elihu the Buzite. And the four of them came to comfort him. And they did a really smart thing for a week. They just sat with him in silence and said nothing. But here was their friend suffering these ways, and all of their piddling theology told them that he wouldn't be suffering if he hadn't had some great sin in his life. And so they begin to speak to Job, and they are not comforters. They just offer to him their awful theology and just say, just admit it, confess your sin, turn it over to God and be forgiven and all of the things will be restored. And Job argues back with them and protests his innocence. And for 36 chapters in this book, uh, Job wrestles with and his four friends with these tiny ideas right there in the midst of his own agony and chronic pain. He called out for answers. He would call out to God and say, God, I need an answer from you. I need to know why this is happening to me. I'd take you to court if I could, but when I got there, guess who the judge would be? Uh, so Job's feeling small and insignificant and confused and feels he is suffering unjustly. He wanted God to answer him. And finally, in chapter 38, God, Job got what he wanted. It says, the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. But when God spoke to Job in the middle of his sufferings and all his questions, he didn't say, Job, I've come with answers for all your questions. He said, I've come with questions for all your answers. Then in the next three chapters, God floods Job's heart and mind with a torrent of questions that fall from heaven upon Job's head. And they challenge Job's wisdom, and they challenge the wisdom of his friends and of his culture, and they challenge our wisdom as well. In the midst of suffering, he offers Job a different perspective, his perspective as creator of the universe. 
71 questions fall from the throne of God and pound on Job's mind and heart, one after another. They are questions Job cannot answer. I'm not going to read all of them, but a good bite of them. Listen, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind the doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness. When I fixed limits for it and set bars and doors in place and said, Thus far you may come and no further. Here is where your proud waves halt. Have you entered the storehouses of snow or seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? What is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm to water a land where no one lives, an uninhabited desert, to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass. Can you bind with chains the Pallades? Can you loosen Orion's belt? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of heaven? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you, here we are? Who gives the ibis its wisdom or gives the rooster its understanding? Who has the wisdom to count the clouds? Who can tip over the water jars of heaven when the dust becomes hard and the clods of earth stick together? Do you hunt prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in a thicket? Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wander about for a lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? Do you count the months till they bear? Do you know the time they give birth? Who let the wild donkey go free? Who untied its ropes? I gave it the wasteland as its home, the salt flats as its habitat. It laughs at the commotion in the town. It does not hear a driver's shout. It ranges the hills for its pastures and searches for any green thing. Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Will it stay by your manger at night? Can you hold it to the furrow with a harness? Will it till the valleys behind you? Will you rely on it for strength? Will you leave your heavy work to it? Can you trust it to haul your grain and bring it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, though they cannot compare with the wings and feathers of the stork. She lays her eggs on the ground and lets them warm in the sand, unmindful that a foot may crush them, that some wild animal may trample them. She treats her young harshly as if they were not hers. She cares not that her labor was in vain, for God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. Yet when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at a horse and a rider. Do you give the horse its strength? Do you clothe its neck with a flowing mane? Do you make it leap like a locust, striking terror with its proud snorting? 
It paws fiercely, rejoicing in its strength and charges into the fray. It laughs at fear, afraid of nothing. It does not shy away from the sword. The quiver rattles against its side along with the flashing spear and lance. Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom, spread its wings toward the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and build its nest on high? It dwells on a cliff and stays there at night. A rocky crag is its stronghold. From there it looks for food. Its eyes detect it from afar. Its young ones feast on blood. And where the slain are, there it is. That's a few of the questions. It doesn't sound much like an answer to Job's suffering, really, does it? Not a single statement that God gives Job in his answer begins with, because, or let me explain, or let me help you understand. Instead, Job is asked to ponder questions bigger than his brain. Carl Sagan, the astrophysicist, atheist, who hosted a popular show when I was a kid called Cosmos, used to try to demonstrate our apparent insignificance by pointing out that our sun was only a moderately sized star in the corner of the Milky Way galaxy, a system of a hundred billion stars, which was only one of a hundred billion galaxies. And planet Earth was just a speck of dust in that. And each one of us seven billion people on the planet is only a speck of dust on the planet who lives only 75, 80, 90 years, which is a split second compared to cosmic time. That makes you feel a little insignificant, doesn't it? It's a little bit of what Job was expected to feel right there. And he's supposed to understand, as we are, that this is not all about us. To think that a creature of our size and our brief experience could comprehend the order and the maintenance and the creation of this vast universe in its details, the intricacies of life on just this planet, much less the universe, to think that we could do so would be foolish. God seemed to think so. And he heard God's questions. Eventually, Job began to think so too. When we read that barrage of questions that falls on Job, we should also begin to question our own wisdom, the piddling orthodoxy of our own world that says this whole creation is for us. It's made up of what we have come to call natural resources, meaning things that we can access and use however we wish to use them. Creation is primarily for us. The more, the better. Growth is progress. Perhaps it's even inevitable. That's the way we've come to think, and those piddling ideas are no less valid than those awful theology of Job's friends about suffering. It, it's pretty clear from God's questions that this place is not about us. It's for God. God questions Job about his proficiency in geology and meteorology and oceanography and astrophysics and astronomy and biology and zoology. That's quite a final exam. These are questions Job had no capacity to answer. Where were you, God asked, when I formed the earth? When I laid out its lines and called it into being, do you know how it all works? Do you know how it all fits together? Do you even see it all? No. It's not for you primarily. It is for God. God enumerates this vast number of species on earth and all their intricacies and uh, his knowledge of them. There's one species that's 
conspicuously absent from God's questions, and that's the human. He talks about all of creation, but not about the human, not about us. Creation, he says, uh, we hear of lions and ravens and mountain goats and deer and wild ox and wild donkeys and the ostrich and the horse and the hawk and the eagle. You even hear of behemoth and leviathan, two massive sea creatures. Some people think in terms of hippos or whales. We don't really know what was being referred to, but God has questions about all of those and never ask a question about human beings. But it is our selfish, self-centered view of the world that thinks that somehow the sun orbits about us and this is all about us in this vast universe that God created. What is this, who is this creation for? We've read these texts two weeks before, but listen again. Revelation 4.11, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure, for Thy pleasure they are and were created. And Paul's words in Colossians 1, For in Christ all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. This is who creation is for. You know, if it's primarily for us, it's really a pretty big waste. Uh, we experience such a tiny fragment. Here we are on earth, and the universe is scattered with anywhere between 100 billion and some say a couple of trillion galaxies that grace our observable universe, 46 billion light years separate them from one another. And, and that's a little bit much for my brain. The Hubble telescope and now the James Webb telescope have helped us to see parts of creation we've never even seen before. Space is unfathomably vast, and there's a possibility of multiverses. My astrophysics scientist friends tell me at Baylor, and I have no idea what they're talking about that when God created this universe, he said it was like a pot of water boiling. You don't expect just one bubble to boil up, do you? That God may have created many, many universes. It's for God. It's not for us. Most of it, by far most of it, human beings, human eyes will never even see. But God sees every part of it all of the time. And like the incomprehensible vastness of cosmic Space, cosmic time is also a clue that maybe creation isn't for us. Our little tiny brains strain to take it in. We've only been around for a short time. Suppose if we had a history of the universe written in a term of set of books, 14 volumes of books. Each volume covers the history of one billion years. Every page in it is a thousand, there's a thousand pages, each one a million, a billion years. Each page of a hundred lines covers a million years. Every line of 50 words covers 10,000 years, and every word covers 200 years. God spoke the universe into being in volume one, page one, word one, line one. Our solar system doesn't show up till volume 10. And God doesn't create life on this earth until volume 11. 
Dinosaurs don't appear till 240 pages from the end of the last volume, and they go extinct 65 pages from the end of the last volume. Human beings don't appear until near the top of the next to last page. And Western civilization, everything we know about art and science and music and all of that Western civilization shows up on the last line of the last volume. Jesus Christ walked the earth 10 words ago. You think this is about us or is it about God? He, he, all of it, we are insignificant. We're a part of it. He made it, made us as part of all he loves, but he loves all of it and he made it all for his own glory. We might begin to suspect it's not for us. He put us here quite recently. It's for God. We are part of it and we have a unique role in it while we're here. But we have a kind of cosmic narcissism that we've developed as human beings where we think that it's all about our rights and our comfort and our progress and um, our, our, our gain, all of it is. We have a failure of imagination that has produced an economic machine that has enriched a few, impoverished many, and threatened all of us, including our non-human neighbors, with imminent extinction. And we are all complicit, all of us, by the way we've chosen to live. We failed to imagine a world in which we are part of it, but bear a huge responsibility to take care of it and to love it with knowledge and affection as those who bear the image of God. And to imagine such a world that challenges our way of life, uh, well, so far that kind of thinking gained very little traction among anybody, much less Christian people. The pain of not changing has not yet reached the level that the pain of changing requires. And our history is that we will not make a move until it does, until the pain of not changing becomes greater than the pain of changing. But I believe that a failure of imagination will not do in a time like this and in a world like this and with the commission that we've been given as God's people to follow Scripture, to treat God's creation with affection and care and wisdom. We've got to imagine a world that's not all about us and imagine a world in which human beings are present and accounted for, doing our job as God's image bearers to be good stewards of all that he's placed lovingly in our care. Well, you might wonder how comforting that experience was to Job, given his suffering. Well, God is not bullying Job, I'm pretty sure. Job didn't seem to think so. Job felt like he had been answered. Job responded. He heard the message loud and clear. The message was, you, Job, do not possess the wisdom to contest God. Suffering is a mystery to you, like many things in creation are. Therefore, trust God and be at peace. And that was enough for Job. The tiny, piddling theology of Job's companions was pitifully unimaginative and a failure to comfort him at all. In the face of that deep suffering, all they could think of was their conventional wisdom, what they had heard, what they had always been taught. Bad things don't happen to good people, and Job just needs to acknowledge his sin and get on with it. Even Job was trapped in those kind of minuscule concepts that kept him from understanding what was taking place in him. 34 chapters of dialogue between Job and his friends just do not settle the question. It just puts that small theology on display. 
But the comforter comes speaking out of the whirlwind, out of the tornado, out of the storm, and he comes pounding with these questions. Look at the beauty and the majesty and the intricacy and the power of the creation that I have given. Understand that the mysteries there are so great, you can only begin to penetrate a few of them. And know that I who created all this can be trusted with your life. Because I love this creation, every bit of it. I love all of it. It's an expression of my love. And even on planet Earth, I love every one of you. I know how many hairs are on your head. I know when a sparrow falls. I love you and my creation. You can trust the God of majesty with the mystery of suffering. This is all mine, he says, and so are you. This universe every universe, this galaxy, every galaxy, this solar system, every solar system, this planet and every planet everywhere, this life of yours, every life, God says, is for me. It is mine. I made it. I love it. I watch over it. I can be trusted with it. I see the sparrow that falls. I see the human heart that breaks. I see you. I know you. I love you, and I'm the God of creation. There's comfort to be found in mystery like that. And to know that the God who holds this universe and all of creation in love and in mystery can be trusted even when our hearts break and we can't understand the whys behind it, or maybe there even is, appears to be no why. But we can, be, we can trust a God that great. The fact that creation is for God and not for us is the root of our faith when we are up against experiences and suffering and pain that we can't comprehend. That's when we need to recall that God is still God. That's when we need to know that we are a part of this and all our lives matter to the God of creation. For Job, that was enough. He said, I don't have any more questions, your majesty. <laughs> this is enough. Let's pray together. Creator God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We confess we failed to imagine the world as you intended. In our sin, we've imagined it's all for us, and we've exploited it for our comfort. We've destroyed that which was not ours. We've ignored the rights and needs of our fellow creatures and our future generations. We've walked right past the beauty of your world and failed to bear witness to it far too often. We ask you, God of hope, God of the exodus, God of the empty tomb, to fire our imaginations with a new way to think and a better way to live with each other and with your world. We ask you to inflame the imaginations of scientists and poets and engineers and artists and preachers and scholars and politicians and citizens we might learn to live and to do your will on earth as it is in heaven, longing and always hoping for the new heaven and new earth which you've promised us. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed your segment of the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. Join us next week for another segment. For more information about our church, please visit our website at trinitybaptist.org.